Chapter 1. Introduction I was 45 years old when I conceived my daughter. For four years, I had undergone fertility treatments without success, and I had read, researched, and tried every medical alternative available, until at the age of 44, my fertility obstetrician gynecologist gently but firmly told me that further IVF treatment was extremely unlikely to succeed. He believed that continuing the expensive treatments was simply a waste of money without any hope of success and that it would be unethical for him to encourage me any further. He spoke about my options, egg donation and adoption, but news so devastating doesn't leave much capacity to absorb anything else and I barely registered his words. I was grateful for his kindness and honesty, but I sat for half an hour in my car afterward, unable to summon the energy to start the engine and begin the journey back to work and to a life that did not hold the promise of a child of my own. The second opinion I sought a few months later was not quite so empathetic, but was firm nevertheless. I remember sitting in those medical consulting rooms, listening as the doctor explained the scientific facts of conception and pregnancy, looking at his diagrams and graphs, and feeling oddly detached. He referred to the statistical chances of a 44-year-old becoming pregnant with treatment, and there were so many zeros before the comma that they were a blur to me. It was clear that I had to make my peace with the fact that had now been presented to me over and over again via so many channels. I was too old to have a baby. Once again, I drove back to work on autopilot and have no memory of how I reached there. It was only late that night, after my husband had gone to bed, that I sat alone outside and cried my grief and pain quietly into the dark summer night. Over the following months, I slowly schooled myself to accept my new reality. I reminded myself that I had a blessed and fortunate life, a happy marriage, a close family, engaging work, and an extended circle of family and friends. I was healthy and enjoyed freedom of choice in almost every other area of my life. I resolved that I would not let the absence of this one thing embitter everything else. I would choose joy, contentment, and gratitude for all I had rather than sadness for what I'd lost. And then, seven weeks after my 45th birthday and four months after that devastating second opinion, I fell pregnant by natural conception. Never having got this far before, I didn't believe it at first. I was too afraid to believe. When you've risen in hope and been painfully knocked down so many times, you learn enough self-preservation not to allow yourself to believe good news with abandon. The morning I rushed downstairs in my pyjamas to show my husband that little stick with the pink line, more magical than a fairy wand, was one I'll never forget. The joy and the anxiety on his face were a reflection of my own. The text message to my closest friend, feeling the unreality of it as I typed, I'm pregnant and my phone pinging within seconds, filled with exclamation marks and happy emojis. The memory of that morning will bring me joy as long as I live. For much of the pregnancy, I was anxious, as was my close family. In our separate thoughts, there were fears that we would not talk about to each other. I tried not to think about genetic abnormalities, about miscarriages, about medical issues, health issues, about loss. My mother was afraid that the pregnancy would put my health at risk, and as fervently as she had prayed for me to have a child, she was unwilling to risk my life or well-being for it. My husband, the only person who really knew how long this journey had been for me and how deeply I had felt the despair, worried that this might end in miscarriage, 
yet another disappointment on this long and hurt-filled path that he couldn't fix. We were all so anxious that we kept our secret from everyone else until I was more than six months pregnant, afraid not out of a superstition that something may go wrong, but that we wouldn't be able to bear the heartache if we had to share bad news later. But nothing went wrong. I had a textbook pregnancy, was healthy throughout, and worked until a week before my daughter was born. My regular visits to my obstetrician gynecologist were relaxed and uneventful, and his most common injunction to me was, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Despite this reassurance, however, I began to measure my life in weeks, my only goal to get to 32 weeks when my baby would be viable in the world, even if something went wrong in the womb. Every tiny sign of anything remotely negative sent my heart plummeting, and I'd be unable to concentrate on anything else until I could confirm that she was well. I read obsessively, until I realized that my research was frightening me half to death. One or two of the best-selling pregnancy books I read were filled with horror stories, unpacking so many terrible circumstances that can occur in a pregnancy that I deleted them from my Kindle. I worried about every single activity. It's hilarious now, but even speed bumps in the road had me anxious. When I later read stories of women fearful that they'd accidentally boiled their unborn babies in a jacuzzi, I empathized too much to be able to laugh. My daughter is now three years old, perfectly healthy and statistically normal. This book is, however, more than just another story of a healthy pregnancy that is a statistical outlier. Somewhere along the broken road that was my path to motherhood, well before I conceived, I realized that infertility wasn't my enemy. It wasn't a challenge I had to overcome or a battle I had to win. It wasn't even a lesson I had brought to myself, the opportunity to learn humility or to triumph over suffering. It was merely a mirror reflecting who I was at that moment, captioned with the question, This is who you've chosen to be thus far. This is how you've chosen to be. Is this what you choose for the rest of your life? Infertility wasn't my war. It was my awakening. Hidden between the pain and fear was an invitation to heal myself. Like many such invitations, it was given impetus by my burning desire to bring something into my life, and as a result it was fairly pressing, but I still had complete freedom to accept or decline. Some engage with their inner work through grief, divorce, or the contracting of dread diseases. For me, it was the struggle to conceive. My inability to achieve this goal, to be a mother, was a signal to me that there were facets of my life that required healing, imbalances that had been allowed to exist for too long, and to shape my life in ways that were not right for me. Without the stimulus of my desire to be a mother, I could have ignored these issues. Wanting motherhood gave me the motivation to do the work that presented itself. I know this sounds like the type of bargain many of us are tempted to make in the throes of catastrophe. If you give me this, save that, I will give up this, do that from now on. But it didn't feel like that for me. I didn't feel as though I was obliged to strike these bargains with myself to find a way to my baby. It was simply that I saw clearly that this growth and learning was what I needed, wanted, and that I had brought into my life the circumstances that had made that clear to me. It was a catalyst that helped me awaken parts of myself that had been dormant for too long. On the journey to motherness, I learned things that shifted not just my ability to conceive, but my entire belief system. I came to see that, one, 
no matter who said, thought, wrote, or concluded based on research, that women my age could not have a child, it was perfectly possible for me as an individual to do so. Two, the reason I did not have a child wasn't because of a list of abstract issues out there that involved statistics, probabilities, or where I fell on a bell curve, but entirely about matters within me. And three, the matters within me that were an obstacle to motherhood did not include my body as a causal factor. My body was a reflection of other things, a consequence. The real work was mental, emotional, and metaphysical. Well before I fell pregnant, I started to understand what I now deeply believe, that having a baby, or not, isn't purely a matter of physiology. It's not simply a question of whether or which mechanisms in your body are functioning optimally. Granted, doctors know a certain amount about how our bodies work and the statistical probabilities of particular events occurring at typical times in our lives. But this knowledge is based on viewing us as part of a group who share certain observable and measurable characteristics. No doctor can say with certainty that there is a specific population of women with a specific list of characteristics who will definitely become pregnant any more than they can identify a subset of women who will definitely not conceive or carry a baby to full term. The overworked myth that women fall pregnant as soon as they relax is of no help to those of us struggling to work out what relaxes us or why we're not at peace in the first place. So if no one knows for sure who will and who can't, or even in some cases why someone can't conceive, because there's an appreciable percentage of women, as high as 15%, footnote 1, whose infertility is labelled idiopathic, meaning there's no known cause, then it must be greater than physiology as currently understood and treated by most fertility medical specialists. Therefore, it can also not be about having this set of injections or taking those tablets and that potion. It's not as simple as how much coffee or alcohol you're drinking, or how much you weigh, or any of the many other lifestyle and behavioral choices we make every day. Underweight and overweight women conceive naturally all the time, as do women who chug down 10 cups of coffee a day or enough alcohol to float a small boat. There must be something about the combination of factors, some physical, many not, that gives rise to infertility. Also, it must be a different combination for each of us, or surely fertility clinics would have perfected the formula by now. Perhaps we need to approach this from the premise that we are beings with many dimensions, and that the key to healing lies not only in the balance of each dimension, but in the integration of them all, so that the sum of the parts leads to a whole that is perfectly ready for the miracle of motherness. Over the years that I have traveled this road, I grew to understand that manifesting my motherness was an experience that engaged all facets of me, and that it was a spiritual, emotional, and psychological journey at least as much as it was a physical one. It's true that I did make lifestyle changes, and that I had recourse to medical procedures, and I will share those, but they are really a fraction of the work I undertook, and truth be told, probably the least significant. In the main, this physical and lifestyle work was done at the very beginning of the process, because that tends to be the route followed by Western medicine, which had been my starting point. The turning point came when I shifted my focus from conception to healing and widened my lens to include everything I discovered was out of balance in me, even if I could see no link whatsoever to fertility. I named the specific things that needed restoration within myself. A dysfunctional relationship between my mind and body, the negative emotions I had stored, 
limiting thoughts and beliefs, and a way of living and being that emphasized the intellectual but shortchanged the physical as well as the emotional and spiritual. Once I was willing to see and acknowledge these hurt parts of me, I found the wide range of resources I needed to restore health. The right books came along, as did the right people and the right conversations. I found articles in magazines I never buy but happened to pick up in doctor's waiting rooms or at the nail salon. A woman with whom I'd worked for years revealed herself as a Reiki master and devout Hindu, and I found peace and solace in the mantra and fasting practices she taught me. But I also immersed myself with joy in A Course in Miracles by Dr. Helen Schuchman, footnote 2, which speaks of a life lived according to Christ consciousness and which had sat unnoticed on my bookshelf for over a decade before. If you're a woman trying to conceive and having difficulty doing so, this book is written for you. It may even be helpful if you're close to such a woman and would like to support her on her path. When I was engulfed by this experience, I searched for the stories of other women, wanting to know how much of what I felt was shared and how others were dealing with it. I wanted to hear the success stories that gave me hope, but I also wanted to learn different ways of coping with my daily emotional and mental turmoil. My intention is to tell my story in the hope that it will add something to your own experience. It's also to invite you to consider that your path to motherness, if you want to travel it, may be like mine in that it doesn't reside entirely in the purely physical process of in vitro fertilization or other assisted reproductive technology, ART treatments, but may encompass elements of spiritual, psychological and emotional growth that don't seem to be at all about fertility. Your actual journey, the details, practices and tools may be utterly different to mine. What may be the same, however, is that you too can listen to your own truth, to your inner voice or wisdom or whatever name you give to the part of you that knows and is certain and calm, the part of you that has the power to consciously create the experience you desire. I have nothing negative to say here about ART and have no intention to criticize either the science or the practitioners of ART. Over the years that I regularly consulted a fertility doctor who specialized in these processes, it was evident that he was doing the very best he could to help the women who came to him. He was someone I respected and trusted, and when I conceived, I went back to him for the first trimester of my pregnancy, after which I transitioned, as is the practice, to the obstetrician gynecologist who eventually delivered my daughter. What I write about here is a process that may well include ART, but is most definitely not limited to it, and doesn't consider it the first port of call in resolving infertility or the place that should necessarily speak the definitive no that will end your journey. Very often the stories of other people's lives seem as though there is clear cohesion and clarity, even destiny sometimes. If you get this impression at any point in these pages, please know that it wasn't like that for me as I lived this. For most of the time, I was afraid, angry, and filled with hurt. I was racked by guilt and often shamed by my circumstances. Sometimes I was just so tired that I felt like I couldn't face yet another heartbreaking loss of hope and that the sadness would overwhelm me completely. Often, I felt that I couldn't even admit to wanting a child for fear of the judgment of others. And so, justified or not, I limited the number of places where I could expect to find comfort and support 
and had to pretend a contentment I didn't feel. A million times, I resolved to let this desire go, to release myself from the terrible cycle of hope and loss before it destroyed my life. A million times, I found hope soaring within me again at the smallest of signs. If you're on this path and have tried solution after solution and feel that nothing's worked, now may not be the time to judge your success. You won't know how perfectly your story will unfold and how every single thing you're doing is a stepping stone on the road to where you choose to be. Try, if you can, to trust that there is a purpose interwoven into everything you're experiencing and that the power at your disposal is larger and more loving than you may have thought. Not long ago, Steve Jobs famously told a group of Stanford students, You can't join the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. Footnote 3. This was certainly true for me. Things that made little sense at the time are now apparent as the steps in the right direction that they were. Consider this article I read about two researchers who argue a link between fertility on one hand and economic and technological progress on the other. Professor Gallo, a professor of economics at Brown University in Rhode Island in the USA, and Mark Klimp, studied birth records for an area in Quebec over a 200-year period, just prior to the Industrial Revolution. They discovered that couples who had children immediately after marriage had more surviving children but fewer surviving descendants over time than those who had children a few months after marriage. The researchers attributed this to a form of natural selection over an extended period, in favor of individuals who showed a propensity to invest in their children. This economic transition period from a developmental plateau to a period of robust growth required, among other things, people who could support their children in learning a new way of being in the world. From the perspective of those families, though, this global purpose was invisible. They may have suffered heartache and worry at what they saw as their private difficulties, but they were part of a much greater phenomenon that was moving humanity forward. Clearly, sometimes Mr. Jobs' dots take a very long time to connect. For the average person, 200 years is taking rather a long view of things, but connect they do. One of the major themes in this book is the willingness to trust that we are exactly where we need to be and on the path to exactly where we need to go. In this book, I write about the dots that moved me from a space of unconscious resistance to motherness to a place of readiness and acceptance. This is represented in the model below. Diagram 1 The illustration of the model has four petals. The first being limiting thoughts and beliefs, the second, emotional work, the third, physical and lifestyle choices, and the fourth, spiritual and metaphysical work. Between these petals are four tools, personality, journaling, intention and attention, and meditation and mindfulness. There were four general areas in which my work lay, the identification of limiting thoughts and beliefs, the recognition of emotional patterns and the release of emotions stored in the physical body, metaphysical work and physical and lifestyle work. Supporting all this are the tools that assist in the process, journaling, meditation and mindfulness practices, and understanding of personality drivers 
and the conscious use of intention and attention practices. All these elements are circular or spiral rather than linear in their application. We begin wherever we are with whatever feels like the right or even the easiest place for us and then move on from there to the natural next step. Perhaps we switch back and forth between our beliefs and emotions. Perhaps we find that working with one dimension pulls the end of a thread that unravels the entire knot and we need do nothing further. If this book is helpful to you at all, then it will be because you've used it in a way that works for you. My own work involved the following things. 1. With respect to my physical health, I worked with A, a doctor trained in Western medicine who specialized in gynecology and fertility and practiced in a large fertility clinic. B, a doctor trained in Chinese medicine and acupuncture. And C, a doctor trained in India in Ayurvedic medicine. 2. I partnered with a healer who is a shaman and Reiki master to address the connection and balance of mind, body and spirit. She works with chakras, access consciousness, channeling and numerous other healing modalities and a lot of this work was about restoring balance in different ways and clearing my energy paths. Most remarkably, it was this healer who told me that I was pregnant weeks before it was detectable by any medical means. 3. I examined my thoughts, beliefs and assumptions about how the world works and my place in it and began consciously to choose those that served me and to discard those that didn't. 4. I examined the emotions that I regularly experienced, worked at identifying the underlying reasons for them, and released the stored emotions that I held in my body. 5. I incorporated meditation, journaling, mindfulness, and a range of other spiritual practices into my daily routine. 6. I made practical lifestyle and behavioral changes, including changing the personal care and domestic products that we use in our home. 7. I became deliberate about my intention, daily intentions, and in respect of my greater life choices, and learned to be conscious of where I was focusing my attention. This book is primarily a story. I'm an intellectual magpie and a reading addict. So now and then there are references to statistics and research, as well as to other books on fertility and healing. Mostly though, this is simply my experience rendered as honestly as anyone can tell their own story. It's colored by the life I've lived and what I think and believe. Despite my enormous discomfort at the vulnerability this creates in me, I chose to share this because in my life there have been books that spoke to me on my darkest days, written by those who seemed to have traveled the path I was on and had made sense of some of what I couldn't yet clearly see. Sometimes it was an entire book sometimes just a phrase that made my breath catch in my throat and tears rise to my eyes. I offer my story in the hope that a few of these words will reach someone else in a similar way. I write because I have loved the written word all my life. It has helped and healed me, brought me joy, and remains one of the easiest paths to knowledge. To a lesser degree, this book is structured as a guide should you choose to follow a similar path in order to heal yourself. For this reason, some of the elements of the story of my experience are not told chronologically, but are organized into parts that correspond with the model that brings together all the work and tools. Perhaps this is a good time to point out that I haven't written this book to extol the virtues of later motherhood, or to suggest that the progression of my life 
is a suggestion of what you should follow in yours. I don't think there's a universal best time for women to become mothers. Whether you have a child at 18, 45, or smack in the middle of your childbearing years is not a fact in a vacuum. To me, birth and becoming a mother are two seminal experiences that souls choose as part of their human incarnation. And that choice includes many attendant circumstances, only one of which may be maternal age. From this perspective, having a child at 18 is perfect, as is having one at 50. It isn't about whether you're young enough to get down on the floor to play with your toddler and be physically present with them for decades, or old enough to be better educated, more affluent, and more likely to be patient and flexible in your parenting. It's about the experience you choose to have. We each come to our wants and desires by a particular path, and in the context of that journey, the experiences we choose are right for us. More than that, for the souls who choose to share that experience with us, our children, spouses, family and friends, it is also right in ways we don't always understand as the events themselves are unfolding. When we apply only mental judgment to the subject, there may be many choices that seem ill-advised. But contrary to the belief I cherished in my 20s, the human mind is not always the best judge. Whenever you have your child, and whenever you are born, and to whom, is always completely and utterly appropriate for the purpose of the souls involved, whether or not this is evident to the human eye and mind. Equally, I do not write in the belief that all women should be mothers, or that the experience of being female is incomplete if you don't have children. If you start out not wanting children, and that never changes, fabulous! If your desires in relation to parenthood change over time, in whatever direction, more power to you for growing and honoring yourself through those changes. I believe that parenthood is a choice, and that if you choose it, or why you choose it, is entirely your business. This book is written about women, and for women, who want their own experience of being female, to include mothering and motherness. It doesn't extrapolate the sentiment to all women. In the pages that follow, I often use the word motherness. It's a word I created because I couldn't find an existing term that encompasses what this means to me. Motherness is, for me, the state of being that exists within oneself, that gives rise to being both willing and able to be a mother, and to viewing motherhood as an opportunity for spiritual growth. It's different from motherhood, which is about the state of being a mother and having the mothering experience. If it is the choice of the soul to be born, to manifest itself, and it's perfectly capable of doing that without help from anyone, then we must conclude that the work of the soul about to become a mother is about manifesting some state within herself that connects with the state of the baby yet to be born and even yet to be conceived. The work we discuss here is about manifesting that state within ourselves as an act of holistic healing as opposed to focusing solely on the outcome of conception or pregnancy. When we deliberately choose to have a child, we are choosing, I believe, to open ourselves to motherness, to allow those facets of ourselves that will be involved in mothering to come to the fore. The creation of a new human being is a miraculous and transformative experience, and one whose spiritual dimension is undeniable. The things that come forth in us, the willingness to love unconditionally, to risk the infinite vulnerability of loving a child, to see ourselves as Khalil Gibran's bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. Footnote 5. 
These are all components of the concept of motherness for me.